gospel of Christ. Now, when I was uh, uh, several years ago, when I heard this for the first time, someone taught me something that they called the KISS principle. How many of you ever heard the KISS principle before? Uh, I'll tell you, it sounds friendly, but it's actually rather frank, okay? Uh, when you might really know what it is. And many of you know what it is, but the KISS principle, uh, it's an acronym for the word KISS, and it simply means keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and I have had to learn to live by that principle many, many times in my life. Well, if you're like the, the, the word stupid, I do apologize uh, for that. But the principle still rings the same. And uh, we tend, as human beings, to overcomplicate things, don't we? Make it a whole lot more difficult than it has to be. And that certainly is the case when it comes to the gospel and to the truth of God's word. We have a tendency to overcomplicate what God has actually made very, very simple. And uh, a principle that I want us to be coming back to time and time again throughout this series on gospel simplicity is this. Religion is complicated. The gospel is simple. Religion will complicate your life. The gospel will simplify your life. And so if you feel that your relationship with God has become complicated of late, difficult of late, I would venture to say that it has more to do because you've been caught up in the snare of religion and you've lost sight of the simple, wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. As we go throughout this series, we're going to be seeing this communicated to us in so many different places throughout the scripture. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, in the second letter that God used the Apostle Paul to write to the Corinthian believers, as we saw, we began to see last week, he was compelled in this letter to defend his ministry because of some who had risen up in the Corinthian church that were trying to lead them away from the simplicity of the gospel, from what Paul calls the simplicity that is in Christ. And I want us to be reminded of the words we began to study last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Look to God, you can bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed, bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through the subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Where the phrase is. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. In this passage of scripture, the apostle Paul presents himself as a spiritual father to the believers of the church in Corinth. And indeed, God had used him to lead many of them to Christ, into a relationship with Christ. And so it was fitting that he refers to himself as a spiritual mentor or a spiritual father to these individuals. And uh, as a spiritual father for these believers, he indicates in verse 2 that he's jealous, jealously protective of them against those who are attempting to lead them astray from the relationship with their spiritual husband, Jesus Christ. And he was determined to keep them devoted fully to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. And in verse number 3, Paul makes clear that he was jealous for the church because he feared something. Notice again what he says in verse 3. He says, I fear that your minds should be corrupted. And let's read the last part of that verse together. From the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. We're going to talk about this last week, but I want to rehash it just a little bit to make sure we're getting this clear in our mind. What is the simplicity that is in Christ? Well, the word simplicity in the Greek language, it comes from the Greek hablates, which literally means straight up. Um, it's, it's, it's almost like uh, you can picture in your mind an unfolded cloth that is seamless and without any creases. Right? It's just, it, it is, it, it, that, that's what, uh, that's the picture of the word simplicity. Right? It's something that is seamless without any creases. We might think of it as something that is uncomplex. Or something, uh, we might put it this way, a uh, colloquialism we use, what you see is what you get. Okay? That's simplicity. It's referring to sincerity or a singleness of devotion. And as we began to see last week, what is essentially being referred to here when Paul talks about the simplicity that is in Christ, 
is your relationship with Christ. Your connection with Christ. We say it all the time. Christianity is not a religion. It is a what, church? Relationship. See, Christianity isn't about a religion. It's about a relationship. And that relationship is with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say this to you. God desires for us to be able to approach Him in a relationship with Him. He wants us to be able to approach Him with a simple, childlike sincerity that is singular in its focus. And that's what's being referred to when we talk about the simplicity that is in Christ. I had a young family call me yesterday. And they called me, and they were asking about their young child who was beginning to ask questions about trusting Christ as his Savior. And they began to ask me, well, how do you know when it's time for them to be able to trust Christ as their Savior? And as they were asking me these questions, um, I was reminded of the fact that, you know what, the gospel is so simple that even a child can understand it and believe it. You know, it's Mark chapter number 10, verse 15. The Bible says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little what? Child. He shall not enter therein. You see, a lot of times we think, well, there's got to be more to it than that. Well, I've got to have more understanding than that. The gospel is actually so simple. And Jesus said, if you can't receive it after a little child, you don't understand. You, you, you've totally missed it. And I think that's so interesting. Religion complicates what God has designed to be simple. It adds in rules and regulations and ceremony and symbolism to make a relationship with God complicated and make it seem like it's impossible for us to really know who God is. But thank God for the gospel because the gospel sets us free to enjoy the simplicity that is in us. So if your relationship with God seems to be complicated today, maybe it was because you've gotten off track from what it is that we're trying to communicate to you here. The simplicity that is in Christ, God wants it to be simple. And it ought to be simple in your mind. And so let's discover today again three ways the gospel will simplify your relationship with God. The gospel will simplify your life. But before we dig into this text, let me bow our heads together. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, we come before you this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to be able to open your word. And now, Lord, I pray that you'll just set aside distractions from the truth of your word. And, Lord, the devil sure doesn't want us to understand these simple gospel principles. But I pray that your Holy Spirit will work with power and beginning to uh, renew our mind, change our mind in areas where we have to believe in God. I pray your spirit will be a work in our hearts in this message and through this series to be um, to be able to help us understand the simplicity that is in Christ. Thank you, Lord, you taught me on these things. And I pray that the truth of your word uh, would come forth in the power of your spirit and would transform our hearts and minds for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, amen. Now, the first way we began to look at last week, and I'll only talk on it briefly here by way of review. But the first way the gospel will simplify your spiritual life is this. The gospel sets you in union with Christ. It sets you in union with Christ. Now, look at verse number two. If you're still with me, say amen. The louder you say amen, the faster Thank you. Now you get the point. All right. Verse number two, here's what the Bible says. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Most of the believers in the Corinthian church have been brought to faith in Jesus through Paul's ministry. And because of that, Paul here uses an example. He talks about how he had become a spiritual father to them. And as a spiritual father, Paul, uh, continuing on with that illustration, he says that he has betrothed these believers in marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. How many understand that as believers, we're often called the bride of Christ? And Paul's using that illustration in the scripture. We are the bride of Christ. And Paul, as a spiritual leader, had introduced the 
Corinthian believers to faith in Christ. And so in that, in that sense, he said he betrothed them in this marriage, in this union with Christ. I won't part with this long, but last week we began to look at the betrothal uh, process in the scripture. And when people were married in the Old Testament, it was a, two, a, two, a twofold process. It started with a betrothal, where uh, a bride was committed to a groom, and a groom was committed to a bride, but they did not come together. They remained separated for a time, usually about a year. And during that time, they were expected to be faithful to each other and act as though they were committed to each other and married to each other. By law, they were married to each other, although they weren't together yet. And after about a year's time, the groom would go away and he'd prepare a place to bring his bride to. And then when the blessed day come, he'd come back to get his bride and bring his bride to be with him. And how many understand the truth of the matter is, you and I, the moment we got saved, we became the bride of Christ. We became betrothed to Christ. Hey, he put an engagement ring on us. You know what that is? The Holy Spirit of God. He said, you're mine. I'm going to come back and get you one day. And the day is still coming with Jesus. And it's coming soon. He's going to come back and he's going to receive his bride to himself. That's a wonderful day. Jesus talked about it in John 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I go, listen, to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again for my bride and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Hey, wonderful to think about the hope of heaven today. The Bible tells us as we consider that soon coming day when Jesus is coming to receive us, the church, his bride to himself, that we should rejoice about it. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And listen, his wife has made herself ready. And just think about that. The Bible says that we as the bride of Christ are expected of God to be ready when Jesus comes to receive his bride to himself. And yet I'll just pause here and say it's at this point that religion complicates the issue. Because being ready is a whole lot more simple than what we'd like to think. The religion wants to tell us that getting ready involves that you keep all these rules and you do all these things and maybe one day you'll be ready when Jesus goes back. That's not what the Bible says. I want you to be encouraged by this fact this morning. You're a believer in Christ. Your relationship with Christ is secure. Let me understand this. Jesus will never divorce his bride. You put your faith in him, he'll never divorce you. In fact, God says in the Old Testament, he hates divorce. You better believe he's not going to do it himself. If he's committed himself to you, he's going to keep that commitment. Now, hey, I'm, I don't, you and I, we don't necessarily always keep our vows to him. But how many are thankful when he said, if you call on my name, I'll save you. I'll receive you as my own. We may not keep our vows to him, but he'll always keep his vows to us. Lord Jesus, he'll never separate us. And so when he talk, the Bible talks about us being ready as the bride of Christ to see him at his return. Understand, the message of the gospel is the one who saves us, the one who makes us ready, is Jesus. We sing it in the song. All the blood that covers us, all the Savior's mercy, all the blood that makes a spotless blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus. You know what's going to make me ready as a glorious bride at Jesus' return? Jesus is. He said, well, that can't be true, Pastor. Well, look at Ephesians chapter 5. And you notice, the Bible says in Ephesians 5 25 that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it through the washing of water by the word, and that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so when the Bible talks about the church, we as the bride of Christ making ourselves ready, it has nothing to do with our deeds for Christ, but rather it has everything to do with our devotion to Christ. You understand? You can't do anything to make yourself more accepted to God. Listen to what we get off Jesus has done everything necessary to make you accepted before God. What he desires is not that you will necessarily be performed for him, although we ought to live for the Lord. But what the Lord desires is that when he comes back, there'll be a bride wanting 
to his people. Enjoying already a relationship with him and greatly anticipating the day of his return. And so that's why Paul says he desired to present the church purely devoted to Christ. Look at it again in verse 2. He says, For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul didn't want to have to present a bride to Christ when he returns that has been unfaithful to Christ. A, a bride that had become adulterous. A bride that had began to follow a different man. Listen to a different message. Listen to a different gospel. And this is what the church in Corinth was, was susceptible to. And it's still what the church is susceptible to today. Being seduced to fall into another relationship other than the one that we have been given with the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand this. The devil is ever at work trying to break apart what God has joined together. Now, positionally, he can't do it. But for some of us in our hearts, he can get us to believe lies and do different things to get us to not be solely devoted to Christ and become devoted to other things. Listen, idolatry is still possible. And it's happening all over the church, in the church. We allow ourselves to become devoted and idolize other things other than the one person who's supposed to be above every other thing. And so has there been anything in your life that has torn away your devotion from Jesus Christ? See, the gospel message is actually a, a very simple message. We have been brought into this beautiful union with Christ. And now as we live our life, he's the one that purifies us. He's the one that work, does a work of grace from the inside out in our life. He does all this for us. And all he asks is that we give him our devotion. We give him our heart. And so can you honestly say that you are purely devoted to Jesus Christ as his brother? Or is there something or someone else in your life that has been tearing away your passion your devotion to Christ. Because if there is, that needs to go. And like the Ephesian church in Revelation, you can get back to your first love. And so that's the first thing we saw last week. The gospel, it will simplify your spiritual life because the gospel sets you in this union with Christ that nothing can compromise. You know, it's so simple. Religion says, well, one minute you're saved, one minute you're not saved. One minute God likes you, the next minute, look, God changed his mind. He doesn't like you very much right now. The gospel makes it so simple, and it's all based on Jesus' promise to us from the believers who forsake us. We've been set in this union with Christ as the bride of Christ. Here's the second truth I want you to write down. We'll get into this. Number two, the gospel settles your uncertainties in Christ. The second way it simplifies your life is it settles your uncertainties in Christ. Look at verse 3 with me, if you would. The Bible says in verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Listen, Paul knew that some false teachers had come into the church and were trying to lead people astray from this simple relationship with Christ that we're talking about. And when Paul said, I fear, beginning in verse 3, it literally means that he was alarmed by something. What was he alarmed by? The Bible indicates that what alarmed him was that the believers would be led away from their relationship with Christ through satanic deception. He says, it's still possible in the church today. You've got to believe this. Listen, Satan has always tried to lead God's people or any people away from God's truth with his lies. Adrian Rogers used to say uh, that uh, Satan always tries to put a question mark where God has put a period. And it's true. And it's happening in every one of our lives. Certainly it happened uh, for uh, the example that we see indicated in verse 3. Paul says, just like it happened for Eve, I fear that it's going to happen to you too, church. But what happened to Eve? Now, it's in your notes. Some of you may not have notes. Genesis chapter 3 tells us the story. I want to read it together here so we can be reminded of what the scripture says there at the beginning. The first man, the first woman, Satan was already at work with his lives. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, look at it with me. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, 
You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. By the way, God didn't say they couldn't touch it. If you allow me to use this comparison, that was a little bit of religious rules, a little, things that, a little bit of things that were extra biblical about things that God had said. Not wrong for me to say, well, God doesn't want us to eat it, so we're not going to touch it. But it was wrong for Eve to be led to believe that God had said not to touch it, but God had not said that. And that Satan used to deceive him. Verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat also. What happened here? Well, there are basically three steps. Those three steps are these. Doubt, distortion, and disobedience. What happened first? In verse 1, Satan comes to Eve, and he asks her a question. He puts a question mark where God put a period, and he said... As God said, did God really say that to you that you can't eat of this tree? What did he cause her to do? He caused her to doubt. But a while later, we go to verse 4, and he even said, well, no, no, God said we can't eat that. We can't even touch it or we're going to die. And Satan, the second thing, and then is distort God's truth. He comes in verse 4 and he says, oh, you'll not die. I don't know if this happened. But I have half, a, half an inkling in my mind that when Satan said that, he touched the fruit. See? You're not going to die. I didn't die. What did he begin to do? He began to distort God's truth. Make it look different than what God, what, what God had actually said. What did it result in? Well, verse 6, we know the story. It resulted in disobedience. Because he allowed himself to doubt God's truth and accept a distorted view of God's truth, it led her to live a lifestyle in defiance in disobedience of God's truth. And let me tell you this morning, Satan is still using this web of lies that he has created in this world to distort the minds of individuals. And his number one target, of course, are those people who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse number 4, the Bible tells us, in whom the God, the little g, God of this world, that's Satan, He's blinded the minds of those that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You better believe that Satan wants to entrap every person that he can with one of his lies. And he uses all different types of lies to lead people astray from the truth of the gospel. He uses secular lies today. I think of the lie of atheism. Atheism says, well, there is no God. How many people in our country have embraced it? Well, well, you think atheism is a minor thing in our country today, but it is estimated by year 2030, if nothing changes in, our, in the current climate of our country, 40% of Americans will be atheists. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, Proverbs 14.1 says. They say the same said. He gets people to believe these lies. He gets them to believe the lies of the as, as, as agnostic. The agnostic says, well, there is a God, but we sure can't know who he is or who he really exists. And how many people in our society have been led to believe these secular lies? And it's becoming a vast majority, mind you. Satan will also use religious lies to deceive people. Religious lies. And we could go on and on about this, but they'll tell people things like this. Well, God will only accept you if you follow our religion, you keep our rules. You read our books from the Bible. You do the things we tell you to do, and if you do everything we tell you to do, then God will like you. God will accept you. That's religious lies. Satan uses religion. Satan uses this world. He'll use anything and everything he can to try to get people or keep people from believing in the one true God and the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. But we who know the Lord. I'd say we, to some degree, are, are not ignorant of this. In fact, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I think it was, Paul said, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We know there's a devil. 
We know he's at work today deceiving and disrupting people in this society. And yet, though we know something about the fact of Satan and his work in this world, and we may know something about the strategy that Satan wants to use in working in this world, that does not make us immune from attack. Church, listen to me. Just because you are a saved, born-again believer does not mean that the devil is not right now working in your life trying to deceive you. So the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that you need to be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus told Peter before he went to the cross and before Peter faced temptation and actually ended up denying Christ, he told Peter, hey, Peter, Satan has desired to have you. So that he can sift you like me. The people is bolder. Jesus wanted. Satan's after you, brother. You better, you better get right. And that's not true for us as the church today. I want you to hear me out on this because we can be so easily led astray. It is possible that you, right now, have been led to believe a satanic lie that is so detrimental to your relationship with Christ. It's my opinion that many Christians today have been led to believe satanic lives that are keeping them from experiencing the true freedom that they can have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why it is so important you understand the simplicity that is in Christ. Satan, he wants to whisper lies into your ear and get you to believe things that the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ makes very clear to us are not true. But you listen to a couple of these. Maybe you've been led to believe a couple of these. Satan will tell you, well, God could never love someone like you. Look at what you've done. Well, many people are going to be and you're in that life today. I'm going to tell you it's a lie. Satan will say, well, you'll have to be a better person before God will accept you. You need to clean your life up first. You better be a better person. Go to church more, get more, be, uh, uh, be about more good works, and then maybe God will accept you. Liar, liar, pants on fire. It's not true. It's not the gospel. Satan will tell you, well, you keep sinning. God saved you. You should be different, but you're not. You keep screwing up, so you might as well quit. You might as well stop asking forgiveness. You might as well just give up. If you whisper these lies into your ear, he'll, he'll say, well, you're too messed up for God to use you. Look at what you've done. You think just because you're saved now that God can do something with someone like you? You say, this is kind of discouraging. Yeah, it's discouraging. It's lies. It's all of the lies. It's what Satan wants to get you to believe in your life today. To understand, I don't know what the lies he's been trying to whisper to you are, but I promise you, he is demons have been at work doing that very thing. See, the Bible tells us that Satan, he wants to enslave you with lies. The good news is God wants to emancipate you with his truth. That's what Jesus said in John chapter number 8. I think this is in your notes. I love this verse, verse 31. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what? The truth makes you free. And listen, if we learn to be biblical believers today, and so when Satan whispers in our ear saying, well, God couldn't forgive someone like you, we open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, not from some, but all unrighteousness. Friend, the truth of God's word is what girds you with strength to be able to shoot down the lies of the devil. You think about Ephesians chapter 6, where the Bible talks about our spiritual armor as believers. And the Bible says that it's the shield of faith in God's word. Faith and what the Bible says that protects us from the fiery darts of the wicked. And so when the devil tries to shoot one of his lies into your life and lead you astray from a simple, loving relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to put up your shield and your, your faith in the truth of God's word. And every single time, it will cast down those lies from you. Boy, if we're not careful, we can allow our spiritual lives to be so, become so complicated because we start listening to the devil and the lies that he wants to get us to believe. By the way, the word of God is still powerful. The word of God still has the ability 
to cut and divide and to help us discern between what the devil's lies are and what the truth of God's word is. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick, alive, and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit into the joints and the marrow. And it, the word of God, is a discerner of the very thoughts and intents of our heart. God's word can cut straight through all of the noise and all of the lies and deception and give us exactly what we need to see that can keep us stable and that can keep us firm in our faith. God instructs us to resist the work of the devil through relying on the word of God. And I think of Psalm chapter 119 and verse number 11. The Bible says, Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against thee. Listen, Jesus, even Jesus, set the example for us in Matthew 4. Three times he was tempted with the devil. Every single time he returned an answer to the, the devil. The first thing he said, you know what It is written. The devil tried to get him to believe something that wasn't true or get him to do something that God didn't want him to do. What did Jesus say? It is written. The Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. A friend, if you'll learn to live by that phrase, the Bible says, it'll set you free from a lot of the satanic deception that it must have put you on. The truth of the matter is, we complicate things because we're not biblical believers. We complicate things because we live by, I get so tired of people saying these types of things. We live by this. We, we say, well, I just feel like God would never send someone to heaven. Well, Pastor, I just feel like, you know, you don't really have to go to church to worship God. Well, Pastor, I just feel like that you know, God can't forgive certain sins. Can I tell you in Christian life? Nobody cares what you feel like. All that matters is what God says. Friend, my faith is not found in your feelings. My faith is found, and yours should be too, in the fact of what God says. And my feelings are fickle. The fact of the facts of God's truth are based on a, a God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Timeless principles, timeless truth. And that's the person that we need to put our uh, put our confidence in. And so have you been led to become susceptible to the lies of the wicked one? This was the concern that Paul had for the church. And when it comes to us maintaining the simplicity that is in Christ, the only thing that will lead us away from trusting in a simple, loving relationship with Christ is when we get led astray through satanic deception. So I wonder, what lies is Satan whispering in your ear this week? How has he been leading you away from enjoying your union with your groom, Jesus Christ. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. Be a biblical believer. And whenever you come to a question or a doubt in your mind, don't trust your feelings. Go to the Bible. What does the Bible say here? Let it strengthen you in your faith. Number one, the gospel will simplify your life because the gospel sets you in union with Christ. Number two, the gospel settles your uncertainties in Christ, which leads me to the last thing I want us to see. And that is that the gospel secures your understanding of Christ. It secures your understanding of Christ. Look at verse 4 with me. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Verse 4, the Bible says, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, if you receive another spirit, if you have not received or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Three different times here. The Apostle Paul warns about those who are trying to come in to infiltrate the church with another thing. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Now, there are two different words that are translated here as another. The first Greek word is translated uh, for another Jesus. And the Greek word there is the Greek alice. And it literally means some other one. It's basically speaking of an alternative Jesus. Uh, I've heard people put it this way. Jesus light. A semi-version of Jesus, not the same as the one that the Bible presents to us. Alright, the second word that is translated another, it's, it's translated twice when it speaks of another spirit and of another gospel. The Greek word used in both of those instances is the Greek word heteros. And this word literally means another of a different kind. 
It's not the same spirit. It's a different kind of spirit. It's, they're trying to make it look like it's the same, but it's not the same thing. And so clearly, there were people who were trying to infiltrate the church at Corinth with an alternative Savior, with a different spirit, and with a different message than the one that Paul had preached to them. And listen to me. The faith of these believers had began to become complicated because there were those who were coming in and trying to confuse them about these things. One of the most dangerous threats to the church today is infiltration. If you drive through most of our American cities today, what you'll find are churches. And if you just drove through the cities of most places in America, you would think that these churches, as many of them as there are, are powerhouses of society. That they're filled every Sunday with people. And that, they're, that the church of Jesus Christ is a mover and shaker in our world today. And most of you know as well as I do that the vast majority of churches that we drive past in most cities in our country are empty on Sundays. Many of the people that are in them are really devoid of spiritual life. And many of these churches, they don't preach the Bible. They preach politics. Many of these churches, they focus on talking about philosophical messages that make people feel better about themselves. They don't preach the Bible. What happened? How did the church lose its power? Let me tell you something. It happened so. And how it happened is through infiltration. Slowly but surely, many of these churches. People began to come into the church and start teaching a deviated gospel. Start talking about a different type of Jesus, a different type of spirit. Completely robbed them of spiritual power. This past summer, my wife and I went on our 10th anniversary trip. And we went one day and visited Boston, and I love history. And so while we were in Boston, I really enjoyed getting to see so much history there. We enjoyed almost everything we saw except for one thing. And that was a place called the King's Chapel. I think I have a picture of the King's Chapel. And it's hard to see in the picture that I took here. The King's Chapel was established in 1681. Early on in our country's history, one of the first churches uh, that was established in our nation. King's Chapel was established as a good church. And through the Revolution, um, uh, many people who served, uh, who were from this church, served in the Revolutionary War. But something happened after the revolution. There was a great controversy about doctrine. And the people of the King's Chapel decided to stop believing in the Trinity. And Jesus Christ in particular was God in the flesh. They became Unitarian in the doctrine. One of the first Unitarian churches in the country. Fast forward a couple hundred years. And as we walk past this King's Chapel in June... You know what they were hanging on the front of the building? Hard to see in the picture. It's a pride flag. A pride flag in the front of the church. It's a big pride flag, I guess you know what it is. Rainbow flag. You see, how did a church get to that point? They compromise their doctrine, right? You compromise your doctrine, you begin to go down a path. Unless God's grace intervenes and there's a repentance and a turning back to the truth of God's word, there's no, there's no, there's no limit to what we Now the church becomes corrupted. It's so subtle. It doesn't start off with a big lie. It starts off with a little lie. But the little lie that you begin to allow yourself to believe leads you on a different course in the direction that God's word leads us. We need to be ever so vigilant of understanding what the gospel and the truth of God's word is. This is why it's so important that we're grounded in the truth of God's word. Listen to me. There are three vital uh, elements here that I want us to look at before we're done. And that are so important for you to understand for the sake of your spiritual stability. And the first one that Paul mentions here is that there is only one Jesus. Are you listening to me? And we're getting late in the hour. Don't miss this. This is important stuff. There is only one Jesus. Today, every religion wants to present us with a different.
type of Jesus. To the Muslim, Jesus is a messenger of God, but inferior to Muhammad. To the Hindu, Jesus is an avatar, uh, a powerful deity who became incarnate on earth. And by the way, side note, why I don't watch Avatar, based off of the Hindu nonsense. And I don't care if the second one's coming out. I don't, I don't know if you can watch the first one. Based off of Hindu nonsense. That's off in the weeds, I know, but there you go, we have it. Okay? <laughs> to the Buddhist, Jesus was a great teacher. To the Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is the incarnation of Michael the angel. Be careful what you get caught up there. He said, Oh, I don't believe that either. To the Mormon, Jesus is a son of God and the brother of Satan. And I can go on and on about what different religions teach about Jesus Christ. And all these circulating opinions about Jesus exist in our society today. And Jesus knew this would be a problem. He warned us about antichrists that would be prevalent in, this, in our society in the last days. Interestingly, when Jesus talked to his disciples about it, they still walked this earth. The Bible tells us, this is what he said in Matthew 16 and verse 13. He asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. And some say you're Elias, you're Elijah. And others that you're Jeremiah, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus said to them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter stepped up and said, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it right. By the way, Jesus later came back and told Peter, upon that truth, with a simple belief that I am the one sent from God, the Savior of the world, I'm going to build my church on that truth right there, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against me. See, it doesn't matter what others say about Jesus. All that matters is what the Bible says about Jesus. And uh, uh, we don't want an alternative version of Jesus. So Jesus said, uh, as I said, uh, we want to get off the roof. Okay? So, you, you know, about we like the shots of the truth of the Jesus that the scriptures Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 37, search the scriptures, for then you think you have eternal life, and they are testify of me. You want to know who Jesus is? Hey, Genesis, the Revelation, you'll find out when you know who Jesus is. The Bible, the Bible uh, has given us all the revelation of who Christ is that we need. So the Bible wants us to understand there is one Jesus. The second thing it wants us to understand is that there is one Spirit. Now, this is a controversial issue in the day and time we live in. But it's an important thing for us to understand because Satan has used false teaching on the Holy Spirit to lead many people astray. You listen to me. Some of you might, might be more from a charismatic camp, but I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. Some errantly teach that the Spirit is not a person of the Godhead. By the way, that's the, that's the rap that we're giving as Baptists all the time. They just don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit and dwells for me at the time they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Praise God, I don't need a second blessing. We got it the first time. Okay? He's a presence. And by the way, you can't live the Christian life without him. He's the power sent from God. We believe the Holy Spirit is a person. There are those who try to teach against the personality of the Holy Spirit. They're all scriptural. Some try to teach that the Holy Spirit enables them to work miracles, to speak in unknown tongues, and to see prophetic visions. And by the way, there was a time and place where that took place. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 very clearly that those things would cease. Because now we don't need signs to prove the existence of Jesus through Dr. Bible. And that which is perfect is has come. That which is in part should be given away, which can be as though Jesus. Hey, somebody help me preach here today. Well, listen to me. I always find it interesting people say, well, the Spirit can enable me to do miracles. Why are they always doing it in rural villages in the middle of the world? They have a hospital. Right on the street. You say, Pastor, can God do miracles? You better believe God can do miracles. You better believe God can do miracles. And I can tell you, several miracles God has done, but God doesn't. He doesn't need me to help him. Or he doesn't need to prove his existence. That physically allowing me to lay hands on somebody or smack them in the head. You say, oh yeah, he did somebody, so God must be real. No, he's given us the Bible. And as the Lord said in Luke chapter 16, to the, to the man, to the, to the a dead man who went to hell, he said, if they won't believe uh, what the scripture was going to do, they wouldn't believe even if somebody miraculously came to them. 
Bible makes these things very clear. Hey, this ain't popular preaching today. This is the kind of stuff that leads people astray. This is the kind of thing when you start believing in a different spirit. These people who say, well, if you really have the Holy Spirit of God, if you should be able to speak in tongues. If you can't speak in tongues, then guess what? Maybe you weren't really saved. Maybe you need to believe God. Maybe you need You understand what I'm saying? That's complicated. Hey, I'm thankful that Jesus did everything that was necessary for me to be saved. And now my relationship with God is not based on my ability to be able to conjure up my emotions and start giving off some godly good language. I'm glad that my salvation and my security in Christ is based off of simple faith in Jesus and what Jesus has we don't need another spirit. We've got the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, the Holy Spirit that God plants in our hearts when we get saved, He's the revealer of the truth of Scripture. He's a companion. He's a comforter. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's the Spirit of God planted inside of us. He's the one who eliminates the truth of God's Word to every believer. He's the Spirit that empowers every believer to live and serve and witness for God. And by the way, the Bible also doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit acting like some sort of, some sort of spiritual genie. If you get a hold of the Spirit of God, and you believe hard enough in the, in the Holy Spirit of God that He'll give you whatever you want. God's not your genie. He's sovereign. He'll do what He wants. And you can pray. Sometimes God will answer your prayer. Now, God will always answer your prayer, yes or no, okay? Let's, let's be clear about what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit of God. We don't need another spirit. All right, we've got the Holy Spirit that the Bible gives to us. And that's the one that we want to believe in. So there's one Jesus. There's one Spirit. Here's the final thing. There is one gospel. One gospel. Are you listening to this one? The Bible says in verse 4 that there are those who are trying to come in and give them another gospel. Throughout history, many have tried to spread false gospels. In the book of Galatians, God condemned, first off, the false gospel of legalism. You know what legalism is? It's an idea that you must do good works to make God save you or accept you. It's Jesus plus anything. I gotta have Jesus, but yeah, I gotta be baptized. I gotta have Jesus, but yeah, I gotta do this. Or I'm not really saved. It's legalism. And Paul condemned it in the book of Galatians very clearly. Galatians, towards the end of the book, God also condemns the false gospel of license. The idea that God gives grace to all of us so we can live however we want. We're not saved by our good works, but Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that we're saved unto good works. And the work of grace that God does in our heart when we get saved, it, it results in the transformation of our lives. You understand that? And uh, there, are, there are so many churches that want to have people come in and tell them, well, you can just live whatever you want. And, and, and talk about these types of things, and there needs to be a balance between those two things. In 2 Corinthians, God condemns the, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of our time. This idea that, well, if you believe in God, then everything will be good for you. You'll be healthy, and you'll have plenty of money in the bank. And boy, if you just believe in God, God will, God will take care of the rest of you. My Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that all that will be godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's why this the better knows this. Life is still hard and still difficult, but God's still good. And God loves His own. We have the promise of eternal glory when we pass away as believers in Christ. We have both wealth and prosperity gospel. The real gospel of Christ is sufficient. The Bible also condemns what I like to call the self-help gospel. The idea that God can help you become a better you. Don't just suffice you to say, here's what God wants to do with you. He wants to put you to death. You say, whoa! God doesn't want to make you a better you. Spiritually speaking, He wants you out of the way. So that His life can well up in you and enable you to do what you can never do unless He enables you to do it. We don't need a self-help gospel, a gospel that tries to tell us how to be a better version of ourselves. No, we need to die to self and let the Spirit of Christ live through us. That's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Boy, I know I've been on several things here today, but 
In the midst of all these false gospels circulating in our society today, God's word makes clear to us what is the true gospel, the only gospel. First Corinthians 15, verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And that is how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to to the scriptures. And so while all of these false gospels try to lay claim to the way to God, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes it clear that is the only way to a relationship with God. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The Bible says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is, that is Christ Jesus. He's the only way. Right? We don't need another Jesus. We don't need another spirit. We don't need another message. We just need the one that's already been given to us from the beginning. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I find it interesting as we grow in our faith in the Lord, too many Christians have begin to grow in their knowledge of religion to a point where they many of them begin to think that they're too smart even for God. They say begin to say things like, well I know that's what the Bible says. But I've read some commentaries. One of the greatest commentators that has ever lived is Paul Barth. He wrote a great commentary on the book of Romans. And towards the end of his life, some so there are students came to him and asked him the question, what is the greatest theological thought that you have ever had? And Carl Walker at the beginning told him, the greatest theological thought I have ever had is Jesus loves me, this I know. Hey, you know, I wonder something. Hey, you know, we don't need something new. We just need to get coming more than you know See, 1 John chapter number 2 and verse 24 says, Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. And if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall continue in the Son and in the Father. I love to tell the story. And those who know it best, they seem hungry and thirsty to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing a new song, twill be the old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story, twill be my theme in glory to tell the old story. Whatever lies Satan's been whispering to you, cast them down to the truth of God. 
Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We preach a little longer than I wanted to. I believe we preach what God wants us to today. Thank you for listening and being patient. How many of you say this for the pastor Bruce kind of over and say, I know that I have been united to Christ in faith. I trust in Christ as my Savior. I know that I'm saved. That's who you are as a testimony tonight. Many hands. Many hands. You can put your hands back there. Thank you for being honest. Those who are saved today, how many of you say, Pastor, you can The Holy Spirit is still in my heart. And I've allowed some things to come up in my relationship with God.
Yes. Yeah. 